As we go to print, the ASCO meeting has come and gone, and in breast cancer, we received what appeared to be very good news in the lead meeting plenary session about the impact of bisphosphonates, specifically zolindronic acid, on the risk of recurrence, as discussed by lead investigator Dr. Michael Nant on the current issue of the Breast Cancer Update audio series. Also of note at the ASCO meeting, as commented on by Dr. Pegram, was Dr. Joyce O'Shaughnessy's oral presentation documenting an improved outcome in patients with heavily pretreated HER2-positive metastatic disease with the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab. These findings provided further support for the ongoing international adjuvant ALTO trial evaluating trastuzumab versus lapatinib versus the combination versus the sequence along with chemotherapy. You can hear more about these and other new data sets presented at ASCO in our current edition of the Cancer Conference Update audio series. The last patient is a woman who was thought to have localized disease at diagnosis but in fact had symptomatic metastases. This is a 48-year-old woman who noted a palpable breast mass in June of 2006, two years ago. She had a lumpectomy and axillary node dissection, had a 3-centimeter tumor with 18 positive nodes. She was ERPR positive, HER2 new negative. So I saw her for initial consultation with 18 nodes, but I was getting a history of a lot of bone pain. She told us today that actually she'd brought this up with her primary care physician, but it wasn't passed on to me when she was referred by the surgeon, so I don't think anyone took it too seriously. So I went ahead, of course, and scanned her with 18 nodes and reporting bone pain, and she had widespread extensive bone metastases. Just a footnote, and maybe Mark, you want to comment about this pretty striking situation where people were not picking up on this bone pain. How often do we see that? And, you know, I would think it would be the standard to do an extensive disease workup with 18 positive nodes. Well, I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier about follow-up with medical oncologists and breast cancer survivors, it's my habit to see early stage patients and follow-up every three months for the first couple of years and every six months thereafter for a while. And then after many years, I might alternate with their GP and still see them once a year, and then after a decade, I'll consider releasing them back to their family doctor. So that's typically my habit, and this is for exactly this reason, in case these kind of symptoms go unreported or are not understood by the referring physicians, having that oncologist with this kind of experience and having a degree of suspicion, especially given this kind of a pathology at the time of diagnosis, for a doctor like Bill or myself or yourself, This was just a classic textbook presentation of metastatic disease, and we wouldn't think twice about making the diagnosis. But you do see delays in diagnosis in the community. People are just not as familiar with the disease, apparently, and that's why we still need oncologists. So how severe was her pain at that point, Bill? She had a fair amount of pain. She was hurting in multiple different areas. Were you thinking about radiation therapy? I was, and I told Mark I'd considered radiation a few times, but she always responded to systemic therapy. It's never really been necessary. So how did you start out with her? I treated her with uh, LHRH antagonists. So she had Lupron and also Tamoxifen, along with Zalendronate. And she had excellent disease control for about a year. And then I switched from Tamoxifen to an aromatase inhibitor, continuing the Lupron, and she just didn't really respond very well to that kind of disease went along. Then she really started getting increasing pain about three, four months out on the aromatase inhibitor with rising tumor markers, and her disease progressed in bone. She's had no other sites of disease besides bone. So starting in September now, so she's been on this a good while, she started Abraxane and Bevacizumab, 
and she's really had an outstanding response. She was on OxyContin and Oxycodone. She takes no pain medications. Her markers have normalized, and she's had marked improvement. I've been using PET scans to follow her, and she's had dramatic improvement on PET scans. Mark, what about PET scan as a means to follow a patient like this? I mean, if you have a pet avid lesion at the time of diagnosis, then I think it can be a pretty good metabolic marker of tumor response. As I mentioned previously, sometimes in bone-only disease, it may be less sensitive than bone scanning. But if you start with a positive lesion, then it can be useful in following the disease course in response to therapy. And what's been going on with her tumor markers? She's normalized them. It's completely normalized. How's she done with the abraxane and bevacizumab? She's starting to get some neuropathy. We talked about today because she's really getting to the point where I'm going to have to make a decision whether we're at that stopping point. Bevacizumab, she's had no problems. Mark, what did you specifically see today in terms of neuropathy? Yeah, she's starting to complain a little bit about it, although she didn't volunteer it. It was only after we queried her about that particular symptom that she acknowledged that she's having some problem with numbness in her fingers and in her toes. And it sounds like it's actually fairly significant. It's probably a grade one now, but approaching grade two. Grade two peripheral neuropathy is significant, and so I don't like to see patients get into even grade two neuropathy situations if it's avoidable. In this case, it's entirely avoidable. She's had a dramatic response. There's no reason whatsoever why we couldn't withhold the cytotoxic agent and just continue with single-agent bevacizumab. And in addition, Bill and I considered the possibility of adding in another anti-estrogen during this sort of chemo-free interval that she's likely to have in the near future while she's continuing bevacizumab. So anti-estrogen being what? Well, you could do Lupron plus an aromatase inhibitor, for example. You could switch her to Fazlidex, for example. There's Feriston she has not had yet, Trimaphine. So there are a number of ER-directed therapies that she might be able to consider, and maybe that would prolong the duration of her current chemo-induced remission, and now would be as good a time as any to take advantage of that. Now, how long has she been on Zolindronate, Bill? Since the very beginning, so over two years, just about two years. How do you two approach the issue of continuation or duration or interval between bisphosphonates? Mark? I usually continue them. I'm not convinced that there's strong data suggesting that, you know, after two years that if you stop, there's going to be a difference in long-term complications. I've not seen convincing data that duration makes all the difference. I mean, the ONJ is an idiosyncratic situation. It can happen early on or it can happen late. I don't know that you're going to be able to avoid it just by switching the schedule around. So if someone like this is doing pretty well and is having such a dramatic response, I would really not question continuate. Now, having said that, when we asked her about her teeth today, I think this is the patient that did have a couple of recent fractures, and she's had two fillings lately. And so that does raise an issue, but apparently she had Panorex views and her dentist was well aware of the ONJ issue and was not concerned that this was the situation. Currently, she doesn't need extraction at this point. He knows to call Bill immediately if they're facing something like that. But I would say this is something we have to stay tuned in this particular patient, but her current dentist didn't think that this was an ONJ situation just yet. Now, Bill, at what point do you send patients getting bisphosphonates to a dentist or oral surgeon or people who've suggested maybe that should be done in all patients? Or how do you approach it? It's hard to do with everyone. It really depends the disease, how advanced disease they have, the kind of condition. If they have good teeth and 
I don't always do it. So I can't say I do it all the time, but I certainly have done it. I certainly make sure I'm thinking about what kind of dent. I don't just start Zelenginate without paying attention to what their dental condition. I'm just kind of curious, Mark, what it was like for you doing this today. I'm sure a lot of people come visiting you and your practice. Have you ever sort of gone over the shoulder of a doc in practice like this? No, no, I can't say that I can recall having done that. I've certainly visited lots of practices to give presentations and that sort of thing, but to actually go around and spend a half a day with a physician, I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, there were challenging, interesting cases. It made me think of new ideas, new possibilities for the patients, what kind of trials to consider in the future for these patients. So it's always, you know, extremely stimulating. I could tell right away, having just read the clinical vignettes and hearing Bill present the cases and then talk to the patients that for whatever reason, he and I are like-minded. And had I been treating these patients, I think I would have treated them almost exactly the same anyway. You know, I think that's also kind of gratifying that what I've been doing in my practice, there's at least somebody else who's highly experienced who has very similar treatment approaches and a similar style in terms of patient communication. So I thought it was really a fun experience. What did you think about the electronic medical record that Bill's using? Helpful, not helpful, neutral? Wow, it saves a lot of time when you can just sit there. You have a screen right in the patient's room right by the bedside. And if there's something you need to look up, you can just pull it right up and take a look. It's very convenient. Do you think that it would facilitate clinical research? Oh, absolutely. It would facilitate clinical research no question about it. And a lot of centers are moving to electronic documents. You know, Neil, if you ever looked at a record, I didn't really get to show Mark the record as far as the clinical research. It facilitates clinical research tenfold. That's one of its greatest attributes because when you put someone on a clinical trial, the thing that bothers you is you have all these things to keep up with. When we start patient on a clinical trial, it's completely templated. You don't even need to figure out when the patient needs it to come back because it's all set up. So in other words, the protocol of the trial is integrated? Yes, it's something you choose. It's like a treatment protocol, so it's in the record. It makes putting patients on clinical trials much, much easier. So if we put a Sarah research protocol in and it's arm A or arm B, when you start the patient, once you know what they're going to be enrolled to, you click that and it's totally templated in from the start. Every CAT scan, every peculiar blood test, every physician appointment is all in there. You might have to fill in the CAT scan, the history of it, or where you want it done but it's all there for you. You can't possibly forget it. It's less of a barrier, so you're more prone to put patients on trials when you have that in place. Is there anything that you'd like to see in the EMR that's not in there right now? Well, radiology images would be nice. So right now they're not in there? They're not in there. Do you find that you are looking at fewer scans and images than you were a few years ago? Yeah, I probably am because I used to have all the x-rays sent to me and every x-ray ordered. Now with everything being electronic, you know, they'll send a disc. It takes more time to load. I'm probably not looking at images as much as I used to. What was this experience like for you? I don't know if you've ever had an investigator come in and sort of peek over your shoulder for a day. What was it like? I thought it was great. It really, Actually, I enjoyed it today. It was a lot of fun. Anything that you, you know, sort of perspective that you got today as a result of the experience? I think it was nice to offer something to some of the patients. They got to meet Dr. Pegram. He gave him his card. You know, for instance, this last patient we presented, she might be someone that we really could, if we can get pertuzumab or the other agent, she might be able to participate in a trial. She probably would take the trouble to travel for it. So gave some patients a chance to hear another opinion. I think the patients liked it as well. I thought it was interesting what Mark said about the way you thought is the way he thought. It's funny because that's one of the most common issues we hear about when people email us that they they feel a sense of comfort when they see that investigators kind of think things through the same way they do 
and also that they don't have answer. You know, when they run into a situation where there's no answer, the investigator usually doesn't have an answer. No, I agree. I also think, Mark, if you asked him, he really commented on this. You can present cases all day long at meetings, but it's a whole different entity when you see the patient. He has a sense of the patient that he could never have if he just read this piece of paper. You know, Mark mentioned that a couple of the patients referred to the non-curability of the situation. How do you provide information to patients and their families about survival and what to expect in this situation? You know, I try not to talk about the amount of time because, at least in breast cancer, it's so variable how long they can live. So I make it clear the amount of time they live could vary tremendously. Somewhere along there, I like to let them know, or at least their family members know, that it's not curable. Though most of the time with metastatic breast cancer, they kind of know that. But it's not something I dwell on because I always am trying to be, and it's so important to try to be, you're always in that balance, trying to be encouraging, but also honest. And that's always a tough balance. You mentioned that this one patient in particular you felt really close to. How do you deal with situations when you get really close to a patient and they do poorly? How do you deal with it personally? It's hard for me. I think like Mark said, to some extent, I have to keep my guard up and keep some degree of separation, but it's difficult. I think what makes it a little bit easier nowadays is the hospice care is so much better than it used to be. So it sort of keeps me out of it a little bit. Now, I still have patients who are on hospice who will still come to see me, but when they get really bad where it's hard for them to make it to the office, then I'm not seeing them as much. That sort of keeps me a little bit away from that end stage part that's the most difficult of all.